On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Goes to Ephesians chapter 1. So Ephesians chapter 1, you'll stand, take your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, as we continue our study through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, I said chapter 1, I'm sorry, it's chapter 2. We were in chapter 1 so long, I just kind of got stuck there. (laughs) So chapter 2, forgive me, Ephesians chapter 2. I'll be reading this morning verses 1 through 10, so if you'll follow along now as I read, beginning in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Many years ago, as a much younger man, I worked in law enforcement for a short period of time. And one of the many things law enforcement officers, as well as other first responders, have to deal with on occasion is dead bodies. And I still remember quite vividly my first dead body call. It was an older gentleman in his pajamas, seated in his easy chair in the living room, where he had died approximately three days earlier. His wife, who was in the advanced stages of what must have been Alzheimer's, didn't even realize that he was dead. His death was only discovered when someone came, came by to check on him. And as we entered the residence, there was no mistaking the fact that someone had died. And when we approached the man in his chair, it was obvious, very obvious, that he was dead. He was not merely very sick in need of medical attention. He was not partially or half dead. There's no such thing. He was in a condition far, far worse. He was utterly and completely dead. And in that condition, he was not able to respond to any stimuli. I mean, we could talk to him, but he couldn't answer. We could touch him, but he couldn't move. When we put him in the body bag and and on the gurney, he could not assist us in any way. He was dead. And there are no degrees to death. You are, you are either dead or alive. There's no in-between. And this man was dead. 
His body was in a state of decomposition and short of of anything but a resurrection. There was no possibility of any way changing or improving his condition. He was dead. And this, the Bible says, is the condition of all unbelievers. They are not well. They are not even sick. Their condition is far, far worse. They're not physically dead, but they most assuredly are spiritually dead. And loved ones, this is the spiritual condition uh, all of us were once in before God and his infinite mercy and grace saved us and raised us from spiritual death to new life in Jesus Christ. And you know, it's very easy for us to forget what we once were apart from Christ and what the transforming power of the gospel has done in our lives. And when we forget what we were and who and what we are now in Christ, we slowly lose our our sense of love and, and gratitude to God for his saving love and grace to us in Christ. And so it's good for us. It's very good for us to be reminded of our past, not to wallow in it, not to be crushed by it or to be nostalgic over it, but rather to remember how blessed and privileged we are in Christ. John Newton, whom... Uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with. He was the well-known English pastor and hymn writer. He he was a captain of slave ships for several years, even after his conversion. And he never allowed himself to forget how the Lord saved him and eventually rescued him from that horrible, horrible trade. And his hymn, Amazing Grace, was his personal testimony to the saving and transforming mercy of God. And we can never hear too often what the gospel has saved us from. And we need to always remember what we once were so that we never lose our sense of indebtedness to God for his great love and grace to us. And as we come this morning to chapter uh, 2 of Ephesians, in verses 1 to 3, Paul reminds the Ephesians of what they once were apart from Christ. Outside of Christ, they were spiritually dead, living under the power of the world, the devil, and the flesh, and by nature under God's wrath against sin. In these first three verses, the Apostle Paul paints one of the most pessimistic pictures of human nature found anywhere. But that's not all this first section uh, comprised of verses 1 to 10 is about, thank the Lord. I mean, the main idea, or the central theme, is seen in verses 4 to 6, where Paul declares that God made us alive together with Christ, raised us with Christ, and seated us with Christ. But this section begins with the sinful state of man, but it's really all about what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Commenting on this section, John Stott said, Paul first plums the depths of pessimism about man. However, after he has done this, he also rises to the heights of optimism about God and of how his grace saves sinners. And as far as the context of this passage, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10 is closely connected with the concluding verses of chapter 1, where in verses 20 to 23, Paul declared that God's great power raised Christ from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, and gave him dominion over the entire universe. And now in this first section of chapter 2, Paul gives us a practical example of how God's power, that that same, that self-same divine energy is at work in the life of the believer. 
May this passage is a clear and powerful reminder to believers of God's great work of salvation that takes those who are spiritually dead and because of his great love makes them alive, raises them, and seats them in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I mean, really, you could say that this whole paragraph is a sort of spiritual biography. In verses 1 to 3, we see what believers once were apart from Christ. In verses 4 to 6, we see what we have become in Christ. And then in verses 7 to 10, we see God's purpose in this amazing transformation. This morning, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 3, what we believers once were apart from Christ. So hold on to your seats. In describing our condition before conversion, Paul begins by stating, if you'll notice verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead in trespasses and sins. This is the biblical diagnosis of our spiritual condition outside of Christ. Paul says, you were dead. Dead. That's the Bible's description of the spiritual state of every human being who is apart from Christ. It's not a flattering term, not at all, but we cannot escape it. Outside of Christ, people aren't just spiritually misguided or weak or sick or ignorant, they're dead. They are without any spiritual life whatsoever. And it's important to note that people are not born spiritually alive and gradually through sinning experience a slow process of spiritual and moral degeneration that eventually ends in spiritual death and then they're made alive again at conversion. That's not what Paul is saying at all. He's saying they're dead. Well, then how did we come to be in this spiritually dead state? Well, all people are born into this world spiritually dead. Well, why are we born spiritually dead? Well, the Bible teaches that in the beginning God created mankind good and without sin. He placed Adam in the garden. He commanded Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he promised Adam that if he ate from the tree, he would die. He said in Genesis 2.17, For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And you know the story. When the devil tempted Adam and Eve, they broke God's command and sinned for the first time. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they did not immediately experience physical death, but their physical bodies became subject to the process of illness and aging that ultimately would result in physical death. But of greater significance is the fact that when they sinned, they did immediately die spiritually. In other words, they died in their relationship with God. And this is seen in the fact that they ran from God in the garden and tried to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. You say, but well, what does this have to do with us? Through Adam, sin entered the world, and with sin came death. And Paul explains this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He says that sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And the problem is that when Adam sinned, he did so as more than, than simply an individual. Adam is the father of all of mankind. Every human being who has ever existed is a direct descendant of Adam. And so from that point on, 
Every person born has inherited Adam's sin nature and suffered the same consequences of spiritual and physical death. And so through Adam, sin and death entered into man's nature in the form of moral and spiritual corruption. And our problem, man's problem, is that this condition has been passed on to all of us. This is what is meant by the doctrine of original sin. Original sin is not the first sin itself committed by Adam and Eve. Rather, it is the consequence of that sin and the condition of depravity which has been passed on to the entire human race. Original sin means that we are born with sin natures that are inclined to evil. As King David said in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now this doesn't mean that he was conceived illegitimately. Rather, this verse speaks to the fact that David's mother was a sinner. She inherited that sinful nature from her parents and they, and they from their parents and so on throughout the genealogical line all the way back to Adam and Eve. And so you see, loved ones, it's not that our sinning, it's not our sinning that makes us sinners. No, we sin because we are sinners by nature. That sin nature has been passed down to us through Adam. You say, well, that's not very fair. Well, it doesn't have anything to do with fairness. And besides that, we are not only sinners by nature, but we also are sinners by choice. We're doubly sinners. We're sinners by nature, but then we are also sinners by choice. We sin, and we do so because we are sinners. All people are born physically alive but spiritually dead and separated from the living God. In fact, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is as great as the difference between a living person and a corpse. And of course, this is why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be, what? Born again. And so as one commentator said, we should not hesitate to affirm that a life without God is a living death, and that those who live it, live it are dead even while they are living. So I guess you could say that all unbelievers are really, in a spiritual sense, the walking dead. So let me ask us a question. I mean, do we understand the great seriousness of the point that Paul is making? I mean, do we understand what grave danger is facing sinners? They are dead to the things of God. They are dead to spiritual truth, dead to the gospel invitation, dead to their need for Christ, dead to their destiny with judgment. They are devoid of any sense, unable to respond to spiritual stimuli, so locked in the grasp of sin that they are unable to respond to God on their own. Dead men cannot give themselves life. To do so would contradict what deadness implies. The text intends to leave us with the understanding that a sinner cannot do anything to give himself life any more than a dead corpse can do anything to give itself life. And nor does the dead person even desire to do so. Only God can make them alive. And thank and praise the Lord that, that this passage goes on to speak of the way that God gives life. 
So Paul describes the Ephesians in their prior unsaved state as being dead in trespasses and sins. Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. In other words, this is the ongoing state, or this is the condition of spiritual death that we all once were in. The word trespasses means a stumbling aside, a false step. It's, it's the action of going beyond or overstepping some moral boundary or limit. It's a person going beyond or overstepping the will and law of God by some false step or, or failure. It suggests losing one's way or straying from the right road. I mean, it's not accidental. The word points to the intentional steps of a sinner to cross the boundary of God's law. I mean, it's, it's a deliberate violation. Paul says we were dead in trespasses and, he says, sins. And the word for sin, which is the more common New Testament term, means missing the mark. And as you're, uh, most all of you are familiar with, it's, it's a picture of someone shooting an arrow at a target and, and falling short of the target. And really, in, in their usage here, there's little difference in the essential meaning of the two words. Paul used them together as a comprehensive description of every kind of sin that characterizes the life of the unconverted. And both make it clear that man has failed to measure up to God's standard of right. Because our natures are fallen no matter how hard we try, no matter how many resolutions we make, we miss God's mark of keeping His holy standard perfectly. And both of these words tell us that before God we are rebels and failures. And our problem before God is not that we, or it is that we are all wrong. You might be cultured, educated, religious, and respectable, yet still be a rebel and a total failure in the sight of God. This is the human condition. This is what we all are apart from Jesus Christ. And so no matter how physically fit, no matter how intellectually astute, no matter how charming and captivating one's personality, if Christ has not saved them, they are dead. They have no spiritual life. And you can see it because they're blind to the glory of Christ. They're deaf to the life-giving message of the gospel. They have no love for God, no love for the things of God, no love for His Word, no love and longing for fellowship with His people, no thought of of living for God. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, the man who is not a Christian finds the Bible very boring and expositions of the Bible very boring. He does not find find films boring, he does not find the newspapers boring, nor does he find the novels boring, but he finds these things boring. He does not enjoy conversations about the soul and about life and death and heaven and God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He cannot help it, but he just sees nothing in it and he is not interested. He is interested in men and their appearance and in what they have done and in what they have said. The world and its affairs appeal to him tremendously. The position is perfectly simple. These other things are spiritual. They are, God, they are God's thing. And that kind of man sees nothing in them. Why? Because he is dead and has no spiritual life. Unsaved men and women are as unresponsive to God as a corpse. So really, it's, it's as though the, the, the entire world was one vast graveyard, and on every gravestone, uh, we see the same inscription, dead in trespasses and sins. 
And loved ones, make no mistake about it, this is, not, this is not only the condition of the most depraved in society, rather this is the condition of all who have not trusted in Christ as Savior. All of mankind outside of Christ. And just as the leopard cannot change its spots, we cannot escape our guilty and corrupt nature, thus we are hopeless unless we are saved by God. Prior to conversion, every human since Adam lives in rebellion against God by transgressing his commands and sinning against him. And notice what Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So Paul says, this is how you once walked. And this word walk in its literal sense of going along or moving about on foot at a moderate pace is found numerous times in the Gospels. However, this same verb is more often used throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament epistles in a metaphorical way. The metaphorical use of the word walk in the Bible refers to the way an individual lives or conducts his or her life. And in this sense, it means to follow a certain course of life or or to conduct oneself in a certain way. In other words, it simply refers to how you and I live our lives. It refers to our our conduct and our our behavior, our, our habitual way of life. And so Paul is saying that living in rebellion against God by transgressing his commands and sinning against him was our habitual way of life. This is what this is what characterized our former lives as unbelievers. We walked that way and lived that way. Why? Well, because we were spiritually dead and we were unresponsive and helpless toward God. We think of it, we walked in a state of spiritual death. We lived in spiritual death. Transgressions and sins, that, that was the very atmosphere in which we lived. And we were all once living this way. But now... We've been transformed by God's grace. But Paul is not finished describing our pre-Christian state. He goes on now to describe how we all once walked by noting the influences of the world, the devil, and the flesh. And, and what he says is absolutely damning. It's damning. Instead of following God, first of all, he says we were following the course of this world following the course of this world. The word translated world is used 185 times in the Greek New Testament and almost always has an evil connotation and linked with the word course, which means way or or age. The phrase speaks of the the present evil age. So we were following uh, the course of this, this, or the way of this present evil age. Or as one translation puts it, the evil ways of this present age. And this speaks of the invisible spiritual system of evil dominated by Satan and all that it offers in opposition to God, his word, and his people. And Paul is saying that before knowing Christ, the the behavior of the Ephesian believers and and everyone, uh, every believer for that matter, it, it was determined by the powerful influence of the culture and society in which they lived. 
They and we were, were captive to the social, and, the social and, and value system of the present evil age, which are absolutely contrary to God's values and, and hostile to Christ. I mean, our preferences, attitudes, habits, and lifestyle were not according to God's standard or according to His will, but rather according to the standards of this world. We were swept up in the world's pleasures and its practices. In John's words, our, our lives were marked by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and, and the pride of life, or pride in one's possessions, or pride in one's lifestyle. As one commentator wrote, those without Christ are willing slaves to the pop culture of the media, the groupthink of the talk shows, post-Christian mores, and man-centered religious fads. The spiritually dead are dominated by the world. I mean, how true that is. Outside of Christ, we didn't follow the course or ways of God uh, that he had given us in his word. Rather, we followed the course of this fallen world. We, we followed the world's patterns of thinking, behavior, and expectations. We were in cultural bondage, embracing the values and expressing the, the vices of our society. Our sinful activities were simply in line with the norms and the values of a world system entirely hostile to God. I mean, all those outside of Christ, they don't live for Him, they live for this present evil world. Because it's all they have. They may, be, they may believe in heaven, but not enough to live in light of it. They may believe in hell, but they figure the only, only the worst of the worst will go there. And so their focus is, is on how to get ahead in this world. And they have absolutely no thought of laying up treasure in heaven nor seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Before Christ, when we were dead in trespasses and sin, instead of following God, Paul says, we were following the course of this world. Secondly, Paul says, look back at verse 2, we were also following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. No doubt Paul is speaking here about Satan. I mean, later in chapter 6, verse 11, he'll warn the Ephesians about the schemes of the devil. And in Scripture, Satan is described as the ruler of this world, the prince of demons, and a more sobering title, the god of this world. Here Paul refers to Satan, first of all, as the prince of the power or the authority of the air. And by this, Paul is simply acknowledging that the devil is a powerful, supernatural being ruling over other evil spirits and possessing authority and, and his realm of influence or authority is the power of the air or, or the heavenly realms. I mean, Paul talks about this further in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, when he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan works to control this world and the people in it, not only through the world's system, but through a hierarchy of demons. You see, before we were saved, we were not servants of God. Rather, we were slaves of the devil. As Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews of his day, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. You see, Satan dominates and controls those who are spiritually dead. 
So they're dominated by a hate-filled spiritual power and, and they don't even know it. And this is true of all who do not love and, and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. All unconverted men and women follow the prince of the power of the air. They are, they are prisoners of God's malevolent enemy who absolutely hates the goodness of God. I mean, Satan refused to trust it himself and so he arouses and incites opposition against it. And Satan is, is always active. He is always hating God. He, he restlessly prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I mean, Satan is always working. Paul says we were following the prince of the power of the air. And then he says the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The spirit now working in the disobedient describes how Satan works on unbelievers. It doesn't mean that they are completely possessed by Satan, but rather that they, they live in the domain of darkness in which Satan has great power. And the Bible clearly indicates that there are two and only two spiritual realms. And all mankind belong in one or the other. There are not multiple religious options, each of equal saving value. Those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ are in the realm of darkness, subject to the authority and the power of Satan. The Apostle John said it this way, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5, 19. By the whole world, John means everyone and everything that is not in Christ by faith. And what is ironic is that those who are under the authority of Satan and walking in spiritual darkness, they don't feel as if they are. In fact, if anything, they're, they're entirely persuaded they live in light and, and freedom and power when, when in fact they're utterly blind in bondage to the enemy and absolutely powerless to remove themselves by their own efforts. In Colossians 1.13, Paul mentions this domain of darkness. And the, and the word he uses there is the standard Greek word for authority, which indicates an active power or energy that Satan exerts over those who are his, which is all of those who are outside of Christ. Satan's dominion is characterized by darkness, intellectual, moral, and spiritual darkness. So no matter how high someone's IQ may be, no matter how successful they are, no matter how large their financial portfolio, no matter how talented musically, no matter how athletically gifted they may be, apart from Christ, they are under the power and the authority of Satan and subject to the domain of darkness. Sons of disobedience, Paul says which is a typical Hebrew way of saying those who are characterized by disobedience. And that's exactly right. Disobedient defiance is the hallmark of men and women who are outside of Christ. As one man said, their disobedient defiance may be cultured and even religious, but ultimately they are refusing to bow their knees and embrace in their hearts the lordship of God in his Son. Of course that's what they're doing because they are enslaved by the devil and will inevitably live a life that is in rebellion to God. And by living in rebellion to God with no fear of God in their hearts, they are inadvertently furthering Satan's evil plan to usurp God's authority or God's sovereignty. 
All unbelievers are enslaved to the devil and are characterized by disobedience to God. And loved ones, we were all once in that very same condition. We all, at one time, were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were under the power and authority of Satan in the domain of darkness, living in defiant disobedience to God without hope. But thank God he saved us and delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Before Christ, when we were dead in trespasses and sin, instead of following God, we were following the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air. Third, Paul says, we lived in bondage to the lusts of the flesh. Notice verse 3. Paul says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We all. This means everyone, everywhere. Jew, Gentile, no exceptions, everyone, everywhere, you know, in our pre-Christian days, we all once lived this way. What way? Well, Paul says, first of all, that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. The word passions means evil craving or evil desires or, or lust. It means to strongly desire to have what belongs to someone else and or to engage in an activity which is morally wrong. It speaks of an inordinate, self-indulgent, sinful craving that displaces proper affections for God. In other words, it's having it your way no matter what the cost. And by flesh, Paul is not referring to our physical bodies, you know, our, our skin and bones, but rather to, he's not referring either to our physical existence, but rather to the whole of our fallen, self-centered and corrupt nature, which includes both our fleshly desires and also our wicked thoughts. Of course, the fleshly passions or, or, or these outward sins are, are more obvious. You know, things such as gluttony, laziness, lying, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, sorcery, outbursts of anger, dissension, drunkenness, carousing, etc. Apart from Christ, man lives according to the lusts of his flesh, that is, his sinful nature. And loved ones, isn't this certainly an apt description of our culture today? When the American lifestyle is driven by sinful cravings, of course, we immediately think of the sensuality which dominates our society. I mean, almost anything can be sold with an ad featuring a woman with very little clothing. The pornography industry is booming as never before. And the largest amount of internet commerce involves men driven by their sexual lust. But it's not only men anymore. No, more and more women are also being driven by their sexual lusts. The self-indulgent, sinful lifestyle of our society clearly demonstrates how sin reduces men and women to animal cravings, I mean, to their most base nature. Unbelievers are totally dominated by the desires of the flesh. In Romans, Paul tells us the result of such a lifestyle. Those who are in the flesh are not able to please God, Romans 8.8. Well, you think, well... 
You know, is Paul kind of getting a little carried away here? You know, is our condition this bad? Oh, yeah. Yes, it is. This is the truth. And it gets worse. Paul adds to this that we carry out the, the desires uh, of the body and, he says, the mind. The mind. Literally, this reads, doing the will of the flesh and the mind. Of course, by mind, Paul means our thoughts. In this case, our evil thoughts. And so we also have the inner passions. You know, the the inner sins of the mind, the thoughts, you know, sins such as pride, selfish ambition, lust, adultery, malice, Envy, bitterness, arrogance, hatred, murder, malicious thoughts and intense hostility to the revealed truth of God, to the will of God, etc., etc. You see, sin not only corrupts us morally, it corrupts our intellects as well. We don't think straight and we deceive ourselves. Later in Ephesians, Paul says, unbelievers walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, having given themselves over to the sensuality, over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. You see, what controls the life of the non-Christian is not the wisdom of God and the grace of God, but the passions of the flesh and of the mind. And these desires have one purpose and one purpose alone, and that is self-gratification. They are desires that cannot see beyond the present moment and certainly not beyond this world to the next, and they give absolutely no thought whatsoever to the consequences of fulfilling those desires. They live for the moment. They never tell themselves no. It's always about them and getting their way and what they want. And what they will have. Quoting John Stott again, he said, So then, before Jesus Christ set us free, we were subject to oppressive influences from both within and without. Outside was the world, the prevailing secular culture. Inside was the flesh, our fallen nature, twisted with self-centeredness. And beyond both, actively working through both, was that evil spirit, the devil, the ruler of the kingdom of darkness who held us in captivity. And so the dead, those without Christ, are dominated by all three of these influences, the world, Satan, and the flesh. They they all play a part in the sinful condition of man. And in this fallen state, we cannot turn from sin and seek after God. We cannot even stop sinning. We're on a path of self-destruction. As one man said, like lemmings, we seem oblivious to our danger as we rush headlong toward the sea and certain destruction. You see, by nature, man is driven to fulfill the lusts and the desires of his sinful flesh and mind. Now, after reading the description Paul has just given us here, You wonder if anything worse could possibly be said about fallen men and women. But the answer is yes. Paul does add something. Something that is so horrible, so overwhelming, 
that the other descriptions actually fade into the background when compared to it. He says, prior to our conversion, we were all by nature the objects of God's wrath. Notice verse 3. Paul says, we were by nature children of wrath. Children of wrath. Children of wrath is a Hebrew expression that means we were characterized by being under God's holy wrath against sin. And so rather than all men being children of God, as as most of the world likes to think, those who have not received salvation through Jesus Christ are not only sons of disobedience, they are by nature children of wrath. When Paul says that we are by nature children of wrath, He means to convey that all men inherited this status and condition by birth. We inherited Adam's sin nature, and therefore we were born into this world spiritually dead, morally decayed, separated from God, deserving of nothing but his eternal wrath. We we are sinners by nature and by choice. Therefore, we are are by nature children of wrath. Our, Our spiritual condition could not be more tragic or more hopeless Because we are by nature children of wrath, we are justly under the wrath of Almighty God, and He is right to condemn us in our sins. Now, we were by nature children of wrath, and then Paul adds, like the rest of mankind. You see, he's making absolutely sure that his readers understand that this condition is characteristic of the entire human race. Everyone. All men, Jews and Gentiles, were and are sinners by nature. We all sinned in and with Adam and therefore are guilty and deserving of nothing but God's settled wrath. There's a growing number of people and leaders in the visible church today who think that God's wrath and his love are incompatible. That the God of wrath is the God of the Old Testament, but the God of the New Testament is a God of love. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. God's wrath and love are not incompatible because God is both. In fact, it is because he is a God of love that he is also a God of wrath. Listen to what one man wrote about God's wrath. God's wrath is not the loss of self-control or the irrational and capricious outburst of anger. Neither should it be conceived as a celestial bad temper or God lashing out at those who rub him the wrong way. Divine wrath is righteous antagonism toward all that is unholy. It is the revulsion of God's character to that which is a violation of God's will. Indeed, one may speak of divine wrath as a function of divine love. For God's wrath is his love for holiness and truth and justice. It is because God passionately loves purity and peace and perfection 
that he reacts angrily toward anything and anyone who defiles them. But I think J.I. Packer put it best by, by asking, would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good be a good God? Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in his world be morally perfect? Surely not. But it is precisely this adverse reaction to evil, which is a necessary part of moral perfection, that the Bible has in view when it speaks of God's wrath. God is a God of love, and he is also a God of wrath. We must never forget that divine wrath is real. And according to Romans chapter 1, It's now being revealed from heaven. It is right now being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then beyond that, we're told that unbelievers are storing up wrath for themselves. They're storing up wrath for themselves right now. They're storing up wrath for themselves for the day of of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And one day God's wrath is going to come into its full and final manifestation at the final judgment. And Paul says elsewhere that in his return as judge, Jesus will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, executing vengeance on those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. You see, the Bible clearly teaches that God judges both sin and the sinner. I mean, people say God hates the sin and loves the sinner, and that is true. It's true in that he offers salvation for sinners in Jesus Christ. But in the end, on the great day of God's final judgment, it will not not merely be sins, but sinners who are cast into the fires of hell. You see, God's holiness demands that his wrath be poured out on sin. And we know this. Because God proved this at the cross when he poured out the full fury of his wrath upon his own sinless, perfect, holy son as he bore our sins. And so what will it be like then? For those who bear their own sins into God's judgment, not having them forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. What will it be for them? We don't have to guess. The Bible tells us again back in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. They will suffer the punishment of of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And so do you see the great and horrible danger that all of those outside of Christ are in? This is serious stuff. It doesn't get any more serious. 
to be dead in sin is ultimately to suffer not annihilation, but eternal condemnation and judgment under the furious wrath of of a holy, almighty God. That's where everyone outside of Christ is headed. They are headed toward judgment. They are headed toward eternal hell. And so many Christians and churches today just want to have a nice little social club where we can hang out and come when we want, have a good time, go home, and forget completely that the bulk of humanity, the majority of humanity today, and among them our friends and family, our loved ones, They are on their way to an eternal hell. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What a wretched condition we're in apart from Christ. What a a ghastly, horrible destination for everyone apart from Christ. You know, if Paul had stopped writing here at verse 3, he would have left, left us in absolute, utter despair. But thank God he didn't. Because as we come to verse 4, he, he reverses course. He changes course with two words, two, two of the greatest words in all of Scripture. But God. <laughs> but God. And that changes everything, doesn't it? And that is for next week, Lord willing. You know, as a pastor, over the years, I've learned that people do not like to hear about sin. I mean, not much anyway. I mean, I I can think of right off the top of my head, you know, three different individuals who left the church because they didn't like hearing about sin. But according to Paul, if we ignore or avoid the subject, we cannot understand, much less appreciate the great and gracious salvation God offers to us in Christ. I mean, the point of talking about sin is not to tear people down, but to inform them of the bad news so that they will understand and appreciate the good news. And this is why the Word of God constantly talks about sin. And why faithful preaching doesn't shrink from pointing us to the problem of sin. 
Salvation requires that we face the facts about sin. The the only way to understand and receive salvation is to admit and confess our sin. And this is something not only for non-Christians, but also for believers in Christ to hear and remember. Who did Paul write this epistle to? Who did he write it to? Ephesians, who were they? Saints, Christians. This was written to Christians. Why? Well, Because as I said at the beginning of the study, it's very easy for us to forget what we once were apart from Christ and what the transforming power of the gospel has done in our lives. And so as Christians, we need to hear about sin so we don't forget the wonder of what God has done in our salvation and to fan the flame of our love and affection for God. Because complacency and apathy for the things of God and the people of God is rampant in the church. So Christians need to hear about sin. So we don't forget the wonder of what God has done for us. And so the flame of our love for him is rekindled. And obviously, unbelievers need to hear about sin. That's the first step to the saving grace of God. I mean, they and we need to understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And sin's penalty and consequences. And they need to know that they can be cleansed of sin. They can be forgiven, born again, enter a new life, not one that's controlled by sinful cravings and passions, but by a holy passion for God, a a life that leads not to eternal destruction, but to everlasting life. And how does this happen? What happens by, by coming as sinners to the Savior Jesus Christ and confessing your sin and that you're deserving of nothing but, but God's eternal condemnation? And then it means putting your faith and trust in Christ alone and his finished work upon the cross as your only hope of salvation. And the wages of sin is death, Paul wrote in Romans 6.23. But he also said, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin is bondage to lusts and cravings, but Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Make you free. Sin leads to eternal death, but Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Truly, truly, Jesus said, I I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. You know, so from death to life, from bondage to liberty, from wrath to resurrection, You know, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Everyone that calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let me ask you in closing, as you look at this pessimistic picture, and that's probably an understatement, But as you look at this pessimistic picture of human nature that Paul has given us, can you say with certainty, yes, that that describes exactly what I once was. 
But God, by his grace, broke into my life and he made me alive together with Christ. And, and now I'm his, I belong to him. And if so, then that ought to fill your heart with thankfulness and praise to God for his abundant grace. But if you cannot say that, because you're still dead in your trespasses and sins, then again, call upon the name of the Lord that you might be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Christ alone, I I urge you today, I mean, I'm calling upon you to turn from your sin, run to Christ, put your faith and trust in Him alone for salvation. Do it today. behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.